Advent season of Thanksgiving. And so tonight, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. We've been going through the book of Revelation here on Wednesday evenings, but we're going to just deviate for a moment. And uh, I was uh, telling Brother Dean that, you know, as a, as, a, as a pastor, as an elder, there are some sermons that are certainly easier to preach than others. Amen, brother? I mean, he, he, he's been preaching a lot. John's dad knows that, and uh, anybody who's ever preached knows that, that some sermons, some texts are just a lot easier to preach than others, especially those that, uh, that one would struggle with. And, uh, and uh, as I was telling Dean and some other, the other brothers tonight, that I, I have kind of a strong personality. I uh, have a kind of a, a type A kind of personality. I like to control everything or think that I'm in control of everything. And if I don't think I am, then I, then I have this sin that creeps in. And so tonight, we're going to look at the idea of thanksgiving and what thanksgiving, having a thankful heart, a thankful attitude towards God, a thankful spirit, what that does for you and I concerning this very important issue. Look there, if you would, this evening in God's words in Philippians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 4 through 7 together, and then uh, we will, uh, by God's grace, just verse by verse go down through this. Verse number 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Well, again, there's a lot to, uh, if you will, in our text this evening, but intertwined, brethren, within the pages of sacred scripture, we find that God has laid out a most holy infrastructure that is uniquely designed for the children of God alone. And this is one of the things that, as we look at this text this evening, these are things that God has certainly behooved upon and granted upon the children of God alone. And there's reasons why one can give thanksgiving in the circumstance. There's reasons why one can pray and with supplication and make your request be known unto God. There's a reason for that. And most of us know, brethren, the, the narrative of Jesus as he was speaking with a woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he told her this. He said, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, we know from the context of John chapter 3, and again, this is all contextual. This is all that Jesus indeed has already laid out the glorious, if you will, foundation in John chapter 3. He laid that infrastructure for the exclusive way in which one must worship the Father in the spirit and truth. He said to her, and again, we can quote this, Marvel not that I say unto you that ye must, what, be born again. I mean, we can all quote that verse. We know that verse extremely well. Amen. So in order for one to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, he must be born again, John 3, 7. One must be regenerated. Again, this is theology that's laid out before we can actually practice that which Paul is speaking concerning the church in Philippi, 
He must be regenerated by the Spirit of God in order to believe on the Son of God, who must, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, who must be lifted up, John 3, 14. And so we see the Son, we see the Holy Ghost there, and then, of course, we worship the Father in John chapter 4. And so it's very exclusive. And within these exclusive parameters that we do indeed counter encounter in Scripture, one of the many, uh, if you will, proprietary privileges given to the people of God, and that is, of course, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And again, brethren, we look at Scripture and we see what Scripture says concerning the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, sacrifice in Scripture is always associated with what, brothers and sisters? With the worship of God. And so, again, this is something that is proprietary. This is something that is given to the people of God alone, this, if you will, this sacrifice of thanksgiving. One must be born again. One must be born from above in order to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This is what the Scripture teaches. Now, this understanding, this truth, really is something that, again, is woven throughout the pages of Scripture. I want us to look just tonight at a couple of Scriptures as we lay the groundwork for our text. Turn with me for a moment, Psalms 116. I want us to see that there. Again, the idea of worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth, one must then give a sacrifice of thanksgiving. This is what the Scriptures call what we do concerning these matters. Look at Psalms chapter 116, and uh, we'll just read a couple of verses together here this evening concerning the idea of thanksgiving and uh, the importance that that plays within the worship of the true believer. Look at 116. Look at verse number 1. Now, the only way one can love the Lord is if one has been truly regenerated. And so look at here. The Bible says here, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications, which, of course, we're going to look at here in just a moment, because he hath inclined his ear unto me. Therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. And so the psalm opens with a man who's been converted, because only a converted man can love the Lord and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so as you move along there in the text, I want you to look there at verse 17. He's speaking about loving the Lord, because the Lord hath inclined his ears unto his supplications. And look what the Bible says there in verse 17. I will offer unto thee the sacrifice of what? The sacrifice of thanksgiving. And there it is again. That is something that is exclusively given to the true believer, to the one who has been converted, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. This is something that we do. And I was telling Brother Dean, we're deviating a little bit for thanksgiving. Well, the true believer should live in a constant life of the sacrifice of thanksgiving unto the Lord our God. Amen. This is something that we should always be doing, but specifically here in our text, we're going to dive kind of down into that. Look what else the Bible says concerning who is it that will indeed give thanksgiving and who is it that will give thanksgiving unto the Lord God. Look at Psalm 140. Again, just a couple of uh, portions of scripture here. Now this, of course, is being done. Brethren, <clears throat> a lot of people imagine in their minds that they are worshiping God, but they are not worshiping the God of the Bible, and they are not worshiping the God in spirit and in truth. Only the regenerate, can I say that again? Only the regenerated can actually worship the spirit of God in spirit and in truth, the way in which he seeks and desires worshipers to come before him. The sacrifice of thanksgiving is given only by those who are worshiping God in a biblical way. Look there at Psalms 140. What does the Bible say here concerning who it is 
that gives thanks unto God. Look at verse number 13, just a couple of portions of Scripture here this evening. Surely the righteous. <laughs> Who's the righteous, brethren? Well, the righteous are those who are what? Who are saved, those who have been trusted in Christ, those that here particularly, God's people in the Old Testament. They were made righteous through the finished work of Christ as they looked forward to that. So he's talking about the righteous. Who's the righteous? What will the righteous do? Look there, if you would, again at that verse, verse 13. Look what it says. Surely the righteous shall give what? Thanks unto thy name. The upright shall dwell in thy presence. So again, there's always a caveat, brethren. You can't just take portions of Scripture and apply it to everyone. It is very exclusive many times, and it tells us exactly, precisely who the letter's being written to, who the psalm here is being written to, and what the promises are, and what those who are within those texts doing when they're doing and they're worshiping God in spirit and in truth. In fact, God gives us a delineation between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous, God says here, is what? They will give thanks unto the Lord. Look what the unrighteous and the wicked do. Look at Romans chapter 1, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. Look at here. There's a clear delineation between what the righteous will do, those who are saved, those who have been regenerated, those who are worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth because of the Holy Spirit regenerating them and because they, what, they looked in upon the Son and they must be born again concerning in that exclusive way, in that very narrow way. Look here what Paul, as he's led by the inspiration of God to tell Tertius, write this down, Tertius. I want all the world to see this. Listen to these words. Look at verse 21. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture. He's been describing and begins describing those who are unregenerate, those who are reprobate, those who are, if you will, under the judgment of God. And look what he says concerning them in verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were what? What's that next word? Thankful. There it is again, this idea of the righteous being thankful and offering the sacrifice of thankfulness unto the God of Holy Scripture. It is the righteous. It is the saved. It is those whom God has called and regenerated who can indeed offer up the sacrifice of thanksgiving as they worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's a stunning thing. They were not thankful Brethren, when you, when you think about it, you know, those rejectors of God, those rejectors of Christ, those who reject the literal six-day creation, those who, who, who uh, reject all of those things, don't believe in any of that, who would they thank? <laughs> when you think you're nothing but a smoldering pool of nothingness, and you have nothing to be thankful for because there's no one to thank, because it's you. Think of that, brethren. This is the idea. This is what we see, and this is how the Bible divides it, that the sacrifice of thanksgiving can only be done and can only be offered in spirit and in truth by those who indeed have been regenerated. There is no question about that. No question about that. And Paul, tonight in our text, as we turn there, Philippians chapter 4, again, has so much to say. Concerning this, I was telling Brother Dean, there's, we're, hitting the, we're barely going to be able to hit the tops of the waves this evening. It's so deep, and there's so much here in these glorious texts that we're looking at together. But look there. Let's read together again Philippians chapter 4. Look at verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. 
Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. What a glorious thing that Paul opens up here with in verse number 4. And our religious affections, brethren, are immediately drawn to Paul's spirit-led double edict. And you see that there in the text. Rejoice in the Lord always. What? Again, I say rejoice. So there's a double edict that Paul gives to the church here in Philippi that they are to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Paul is emphasizing to us in our text this evening that our rejoicing, that the Christian's rejoicing is indeed unique. It is indeed unique and it is indeed distinct from the world. And this is what, again, there's always that distinction Paul always makes that distinction. The Bible always makes that distinction. There is indeed a unique rejoicing. There is indeed a distinct rejoicing that the Christian does that the world knows nothing about. It's a stunning thing. The Christian's rejoicing is found, brother. Brother Dean was praying tonight. I was just thinking about the text, about our brothers who are over in India and over in these different places, Africa being persecuted mercilessly. And yet there they are, rejoicing in the Lord, doing this double edict, exactly what Paul has commanded the church to do there in Philippi, which is an amazing thing when you consider that. Now, the Christian's rejoicing is found in our immutable, unchangeable, sovereign Lord. And really, brethren, again, as he prayed tonight, that prayer was so, so applicable. It was so needful. For us to understand as Americans, when God does uh, send some persecution, when God does send some trials, when God does send something into the life of the believer, most of the time in Western culture, they come up with, many times we come up with unholy thoughts concerning God. And we must be extremely careful, and Paul addresses that. We're going to look at this here this evening. We must be very careful that we do not come up with any kind of unholy, unrighteous thoughts concerning God. It's very important that we do that. God is our supernatural, inexhaustible source of rejoicing. Not the world, nor its ever-changing circumstances, because the world changes every minute, every second, every day. Our rejoicing, as Paul says, is in the Lord. Our rejoicing is unique. It is distinct from the world. Our rejoicing ought not to change. When our circumstance changes, when something changes, our rejoicing in the Lord should not be based upon those things. Although it's a difficult thing. That's why it's hard for us as Americans to look at this text and go, what should we be doing? In fact, 12 times, brethren, 12 times in this epistle alone, this is addressed. Joy, being joyful, rejoicing in the Lord, 12 times. I want us to see just a couple of them here as we get into our text. Look at chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse number 18. And again, as we (laughs) unfold this text, we have to realize when Paul is saying this, what his circumstances are. Amen? I mean, most theologians know what his circumstances are when he wrote this, can I say it? Prison epistle. What does that tell you? Where was Paul at? Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote this letter, and he's telling the brethren to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice, a double edict, because Paul's rejoicing and his joy that he had in the Lord had nothing to do with his circumstances, and they changed 
pretty much on a regular basis. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Again, see how easy this is to preach and how hard it is sometimes to believe it. I mean, it's one of those things like I was wrestling with it because I believe it. I believe what it says. But we must pray that the Spirit of God will give us the grace to practice and walk that out. Because there is coming a time, brother, I, I am convinced in my heart that there's coming a time when we will be just like this, these letters we see in the churches, to the churches. Persecution, suffering. I mean, if it's happening to our brothers in other areas, it's not too long, I don't think, before the judgment of God, which I believe is on us, the judgment of abandonment, takes full effect. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Again, this whole idea of rejoicing. Look at what Paul says there in verse number 18. What then? Notwithstanding, what does he say? Every way, uh, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And therein, uh, and I therein do what? Rejoice, there's that word again. And, yea, and will rejoice. There's that double edict again. He rejoices and he says, I'm going to rejoice. I'm rejoicing now and I'm going to rejoice no matter what the circumstances are. And again, what are the circumstances? Look at the previous verses. Look at verse number 12. Paul here, again, is in prison. And we, when we look at this, when he's saying to rejoice, he's thinking outside. Well, I don't want this to sound weird, but he's thinking outside of himself. He's thinking outside of what's happening to him. He's thinking about what God is doing, what God is accomplishing. What God is accomplishing through him. And when we can look through those lenses, brethren, we will indeed rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Look at here at verse number 12. Look at these, these brethren knew exactly where he was at. Look at verse number 12. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. He knows. They know where he's at. They know what's happened to him. He's been arrested. He's in prison. And he says, hey, what has happened to me has actually, as always we see in Scripture, evil men mean one thing. God uses it for what? His glory and for his good. Here's the same thing. They're going to put Paul in prison. They're going to try and quiet him. And what does he do? I'm, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice in it because the gospel is being uh, given out to people who would never hear it if I wasn't here in this place. Look what he says. Look what he says there. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and all other places. I mean, this gospel is going up into the palace because Paul's been put in prison and he's preaching to the palace guards. I mean, it's an amazing thing to the guards. And it goes right up into Caesar's palace. We see that in the book of Acts. Paul, again, is rejoicing because he sees outside of that. He sees his circumstances and said, God is using my circumstances for his glory. And that's the way he lived. And brethren, whew, that, my friends, is an amazing thing. To live with that kind of insight and that kind of spirit, the spirit of God living in you, to help us to see that what is taking place is for his glory. It always is. Now again, Paul, as we are laying the groundwork here. Look at Philippians chapter 2 again, 13, or 12, 12 times we see this. I'm just, we're just going to give you a couple of them. Paul's in his circumstances and here, and he's just, he's praising God because the gospel's going where it should be, even though he's in prison. Look at verse number 
2 of Philippians chapter 2. Again, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. This will come in a little later because there was also a problem in this church. In chapter 4, as we know, right? Look there just quickly. Let's just look at the problem that Paul is going to address. There's two women in the church, and there was an issue between the ladies, between the women, and it was public. It had to be public because Paul knew about it. The church knew about it. But look what he says in verse number 2. I beseech Eodius and beseech Syctyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So again, we see this here, this idea of being in the same mind. He's addressing. There was a schism there between the ladies. And Paul addresses that, the same thing here. Fulfill ye my joy and be like-minded. Again, the joy of the Lord is something that is brought forth by the unity of the church. Amen? Those of us who are pastors and elders have felt the sting over and over again of what happens when things get disjointed, when things get out of unity and there's much hurt and that that goes on. And yet, Paul says, my joy is in the Lord. It's there because of the work that he is doing. Look at verse 16. Just again, this common theme all throughout the book of Philippians. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Look at verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice of service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with all of you. There it is again, call his constant theme of rejoicing. Not in himself, not in what he's doing, but in the Lord in the Lord Jesus Christ, in what God is doing, again, looking outside of his circumstances and what's happening to him. And finally, look at verse 18. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. So again, brethren, the whole idea, the whole theme here is that circumstances should not, let me say that again, should not dictate our joy in the Lord. Even though it's difficult, even though at times it certainly can cause that to happen. Back, okay, Philippians 3, just we'll, we'll finish this up here. Look at again here, this theme, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, is indeed not grievous, but it is safe. For, but for you it is safe. Again, Paul is rejoicing that he's able to watch over the flock there. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God, listen, in the spirit, there it is again. The true worshiper of God worships God in the spirit because he's been redeemed, regenerated, and saved by Christ's work. And then look what he says. And rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul's rejoicing. The joy that he's speaking of here in this glorious letter, again, is based on his biblical understanding that God is sovereign in all things. Paul's in prison because of God directed him there and put him there. The gospel is going forth because God ordained the gospel through that to go forth. And so here he is rejoicing in what God is doing. Rejoicing in what God is doing, not in his circumstantial situation that he is in. He knows that God is in complete control of everything that's taking place. Every single particle. Now look there at verse number 6. This again is something as he tells the brethren to rejoice in the Lord. Again I say rejoice because the Lord is at hand and literally 
that terminology there. Many people will try and liken that to the second coming, and you can liken it to that, but he's talking about the nearness of God, that God has not left him, God has not abandoned him, God is there with him even in his circumstance. And then he says this. Look at verse 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. What in a glorious statement that he would make after laying that foundation. Unlike verse 4, brother, where we uh, are given a positive command, that which we are to do. We are commanded by God to rejoice in the Lord always. That's a positive command. Here in verse 6, we see quite the opposite. He gives us a negative command. That's which we are not supposed to do. And yet that is the thing we sometimes do the most. Isn't it glorious? I still remember Keith one time. Isn't it great God? He, he tells us not to do something, and then he fills it with something that's good and right. So he doesn't leave a vacuum. It's the same thing here, except it's in reverse. Do this. Now he says, don't do this. Don't do what? What shouldn't we as regenerated, Bible-believing Christians be doing? Well, we shouldn't be anxious. We shouldn't be exceeding anxious. That's what that word means. That word that we're looking at there literally means that we are, in today's vernacular, if I could use today's language, brethren, again, I'm preaching to the choir because I am indeed, and I struggle with, being a worry wart. I don't know about you, I'm just confessing myself openly that I do indeed worry way more than I should. Amen? Paul says don't do that. Don't worry. In fact, that word careful that's used there denotes excessive anxiety. I don't have excessive anxiety, I'm just high strung and I get kind of wound up once in a while about things. It refers to an over-agitated state of mind concerning the events and circumstances of one's life. When people just meditate on that stuff, when you're not looking outside of yourself, when you're not looking what God is doing, ooh, it creates some amazing things in the mind and in the heart. This is, again, this glorious lesson that Paul is giving us. Now, let me say this. Paul's not saying that we will never have concerns. Brethren, we all have concerns. We should. If you don't have any concerns, I want to come and sit by you for a while. Do you know when the sin comes in? The sin comes in when the concerns have you. That's when the unholy train goes off the tracks. When your concerns have a hold of you not you having control of them. This is worry. This is the most dangerous kind of thing that can happen to a believer. And, of course, a non-believer as well, because that's where they live most of the time. When you're scared of a little virus and you're going to slap a mask on your pie hole thinking that's going to save you, you're worried about something you shouldn't be worried about. Amen? It's a sinful thing. Again, we all have concerns. Paul's not saying that. We take care of one another in those concerns. It's excessive worry and anxiety that is sinful, that we must 
ask God to help us to turn away from. Look here, if you would, at again another familiar narrative to us. I want you to see, look in Luke, if you would, turn with me there to the Gospel of Luke. This same word is used of Martha. Remember Martha? Martha was busy and troubled, and she was careful about many things, Jesus said. This is the kind of thing we are to stay away from. We are to rest in the Lord. We should be concerned. I'm concerned about my children. I'm concerned about the world they're growing up in. I'm concerned about their souls. I'm concerned about them. But brethren, we can't be sinning in front of God by worrying like we do. Look here what Jesus says. Look at Luke chapter 10. Again, always easier said than done. Look at verse number 38. Luke chapter 10, look at verse number 38. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about. (laughs) She was busy about this and busy about that and busy doing this. Meanwhile, her sister sitting at the feet of Christ, hearing his word. Look at what... She says to the Lord, uh, 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 but Martha was cumbered about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art what? Careful. You are worried. You are consumed with worry and anxiety about these things that are taking place. And look look to what he says. You are careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. This, brethren, as I said, is indeed the kind of worry that is very dangerous because it does indeed allow one's mind and one's heart to think things about God that we should not be thinking like Dean in his prayer again so so needful tonight if hard times come if persecution comes what is our view of God going to be he doesn't love me anymore he doesn't care for me anymore he hates me yeah that's what happens brethren when you have an unholy worry going on in your mind it creates unholy things about who God is it really does in fact If you look there, that's why Paul wrote verses 7 and 8 of Philippians chapter 4. Let's flip there quickly. Again, this is something that's agitated in the mind and in the heart, creating unholy thoughts concerning God and who he is. Look at Philippians chapter 4. This is why the Spirit of God led Paul to put this in there. Look there if you would. Philippians chapter 4. Look at verses 7 and 8. Look what he says. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your what? Hearts and minds. You see that there? He's warning against this kind of unholy worry because it creates things about God that are unholy and should not be in the mind or the heart of a Christian. Therefore, he tells them, be careful. It says here, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, Peter, again, brethren, 
Flip with me there to 1 Peter. See, this is the unholy thing we must never think about God, that God doesn't care for us, that God doesn't love us. <laughs> the last I checked, brethren, do you realize what the Bible says concerning if you're saved tonight, if you're a child of God, how much God loves you? Do you understand what the Bible says? He loves you like he loves his son. Do you understand that? We should never think any less of God than that. But brethren, we do. In fact, I'm sweating because I'm talking about myself. Sometimes we do that. He doesn't love us. He doesn't like us anymore. And yet look what Peter says in 1 Peter. Look, just look there quickly. We are to cast something. We're, ca we're to cast all of it. Look what he tells us to do, 1 Peter chapter 5. And again, this is something that only a truly regenerated child of God can do because this is spirit-led. This is something the Spirit does inside of us. And we can only do it by the work of the Spirit. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verse number 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. What? For he cares for you. Brethren, if you're saved tonight, God cares for you, irregardless of what your circumstances are. And believe me, there's some brothers in the church struggling with some severe circumstances. And yet God, we must not think, nor other allow to come into our minds or in our hearts an unholy thought concerning God in those circumstances. Do you see how easy that is to preach? And when you get down into it, when you got Josh and you got Millie and you got some of the things going on in our church, it, it gets very, very real and very, very deep very quickly. It really does. But here we're told to cast all of our cares because he does indeed care for you no matter what circumstance we're in. He sovereignly guided the circumstance. He put us there wherever we might be. And again, if we can think like Paul thought, that what is happening to me, there's something greater that God is doing. Who knows? I don't know what God is doing, but he does. And he knows in your life what he's doing and what he's going to accomplish. In fact, one pastor said this, undue care is an intrusion into the arena that belongs to God alone. Period. It makes us the father of the household. Right? It makes us the father of the household instead of being the child. Yes. That's what it does. Undue worry. Over-anxiousness. Unholy driving off the... <laughs> the unholy train off the tracks is something we must be ever careful about. But look what Paul does. Look at his caring for the church. Look at his caring for us some 2,000 years later. Look what he tells us to do there in verse number 6. Look back at verse number 6. Don't do this. Do that. Don't do this. And then here, brothers, is how we must pray and ask the Spirit of God to sink it deep down into our hearts deep down into our minds to apply this truth. If he doesn't apply it, we will never act right. We will never react right.
to what God is doing. Look there at verse number 6 again, Philippians chapter 4. Be careful for nothing. (laughs) Did you get that? Be careful for nothing. But in everything. (laughs) Did you see that? Be careful for nothing, but in everything. It's a stunning thing. What? He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. There it is again. That's what undergirds this thing. The idea of being thankful for what God is doing. It's amazing, isn't it, brethren, when you look at that? Paul here gives unto us a great contrast in this verse. First, we're to care for nothing. And I didn't define the word, so I'm going to define it now. That word nothing means no part, no portion, no quantities, no degree, no decree at all. Nothing. Nothing is nothing. We're not to be anxious in anything. Nothing. But, I like that conjunction, I like that word. But God, of course, we can put that in there. But, we are to what? We are to what? In everything, all parts, all portions, all degrees, all quantities. We are with prayer, our daily communication with God, and supplication, directly asking God. This is the thing, brethren. That word supplication is unique here. It's only used a couple of other times, but it literally has the idea, if you will, of begging God. It is the supplication. It is directly asking God to do something in a most deep and intense way. Oh, God, I'm in this circumstance. Give me the strength. Give me the power. Give me the will, if you will, inside this as the Spirit of God works to work my way through this for your glory. That's what Paul is saying. We must pray in all supplication. We must literally ask God to do something. And finally, he lays on top of that thanksgiving. Really, the foundation to it all. All of these things, all are, if you will, circumferenced with thanksgiving. The thing we started with. The thing that only a truly regenerated son or daughter of God can do. And that is to offer up the sacrifice of thanksgiving to God in all circumstances. In all things. Thanksgiving is the spirit's antidote and guard against a spirit of haughtiness, of condescending and imperious spirit. Having a thankful spirit keeps one grounded. (laughs) This is what we must always remember, brother. Again, being thankful and having thanksgiving in your heart from God does a lot of things. But it keeps us grounded. And it reminds us, brethren, of the things that you and I could never do. This is one of the glorious things of thanksgiving. It reminds us of things that we could never do, but it also then reminds us of all that God has done, all that God is doing, and all that God is going to do in the life of a true believer. This is what it does. It's so foundational, brother. It's, it's, it's not just some fluky little thing Thanksgiving and having a spirit of thanksgiving is something the Spirit of God gives to the true child of God that he will never lose sight of that. Because when you've been a Christian a long time, sometimes you forget. You forget what you were saved from. You forget what he did for you and what he's continuing to do for you and what he's going to do for you. We must never do that. When you have a spirit of thanksgiving, that never goes away. It will never go away. You will never end up 
with a haughty, condescending, imperious, hard-hearted spirit. It can't. You can't. When you, can, you realize what the infinite God has done, he's taken your sin, my sin, and he's placed it on his son and taken it away from us. Think of that. He's removed it as far as the east is. He's taken that away. He placed it on his son, something you and I could never do. We can never forget that. That alone should cause the child of God to fall on his knees with what? Thanksgiving, with a thankful heart and a thankful spirit. Just that alone, let alone all the other blessings that God gives to us. Amen? Having a thankful spirit. In fact, Paul mentions this in Philippians, and we'll finish this up here. Look at Philippians chapter 1 again. What a, what a glorious book. Just spent so much time recently here in this book, and I've learned so much from it. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse number 3, how he starts the letter. I thank, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy. There's thankfulness and joy again. I mean, it's just a theme that goes through the book. Look at verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. There it is. There's Paul being thankful for what he did, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. Amen. It's all tied together. It's the Lord God, sovereign himself, working these things out, these circumstances, the things in our lives, all for his glory and for his own good. That generates within us, brethren, a spirit of thankfulness. When we understand that, when we get a hold of that, what Paul is saying here, even in our circumstances. One more verse. Look at Paul. He can't help himself. He's so full of thankfulness. He's so thankful to God. He's thankful to, to Christ. He's thankful for what he's done. Look at 1 Timothy there, and we'll, uh, we'll close out with this verse. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse number 12. Again, having a thankful spirit, a thankful understanding of what God has done and what he's doing and what he will do. Verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus. There's it. There it is again. He just breaks out in a chorus of thankfulness. Our Lord who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, a violent aggressor. That's what that means. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Again, brethren, his thankful attitude, his thankful spirit, knowing what Christ had done for him. Let me close just with a relevant, practical point, if I could. When Corey and Betsy Tenboom entered the filthy, flea-ridden Ravensbach prison, they cried out to the Lord for help. I mean, this is a true narrative. This is a true happening. Very, not that long ago, brother, and it's very relevant in the, in the scheme of things. I want you to listen to this. This, my brethren, is what a regenerated child of God 
This is how they will look outside of their circumstances and they will see God working for his glory. Listen to this. Betsy quoted to Corey from Holy Writ, Give thanks unto God in all circumstances. For we are here together in this prison and have a Bible that was not confiscated. So in other words, they end up in their prison cell with a Bible that they did not find. They've got this Bible. And so Corey and Betsy are praising God and giving thanks, even though the circumstances seem to be very uncouth and very unhealthy and very, very bad, which they were. They're still praising God and giving him thanks for their circumstance. Now listen, it gets better. It gets deeper than that. While lying on their flea in lice-infested straw beds, they gave thanks unto God for the fleas and for the lice. You know why? In their minds and in truth and in reality, the fleas were indeed a blessing from God. Do you know why? Because it prevented the keeper of the prison and it prevented all of the guards from going into their cell. They wouldn't come near it. They wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, Betsy asked, why aren't you coming in? You guys, you got flea ridden. There's lice in here. We're not coming in there. And they thanked God for that. Do you know why? Because they took their unconfiscated Bible. And you know what they did? Because the fleas kept the guards away, they were able to teach the word of God to the other women who were in that prison cell with them. What an amazing thing, brethren, for one to view outside of oneself. My circumstance is I'm in a prison. My circumstance is there's fleas and there's ridden everywhere and I'm laying on straw. But we're going to thank God for that because he has indeed given us the privilege, the opportunity, because of the fleas, to open his word and to teach his word to some lost ladies in the prison. Now we know that Betsy did indeed die there. Most of the women that were in that cell died. Corey, of course, was released by mistake. <laughs> no, no brother, there's no mistake. But again, as we analyze and we look at our text tonight, the, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, that which only a true child of God can do, is something that we must pray that the Lord, even in our circumstances, even as dark and as dire as they may look at times, we must give God glory for what he is doing, whatever it might be that comes. And again, brethren, this is way easier said than done. It is something that when you're going through the storm, it is a miraculous, supernatural working of the Spirit of God that must take place. For one to wake up and to thank God for fleas and lice is one who truly is regenerated and sees outside of themselves, outside of the circumstance, what God is actually doing. Amen? May he grant that to us. May he grant unto us a spirit of thanksgiving in everything. Be anxious for nothing, Nothing. Have concern, yes. <laughs> We're all concerned. In fact, Eileen asked my wife, Eileen over here, to worry. 
anxious, out of control. And that's a good thing, place to be, actually. When God is in control, you're not. Amen? What a glorious state of, of being to be in that, if I can use the word, environment, in that place where God, as he did with Betsy and Corey, and as he is doing even now for the people that Brother Dean prayed for earlier, I guarantee you God is watching over them. God is using them for his glory in their, what appears to be, a most grievous situation. And yet God is so good. Amen? So good in all things. Let us never have, if it comes our way, let us never have an unholy thought come into our mind concerning God and who he is. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, we...